Welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hi, I'm Bela Musitz, coming to you from upstate New York. I'm a former three-time entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and business school professor. And coming to you from Münster, Germany, I'm Mike Wasserman, Professor of International Management at the Münster University of Applied Sciences. Thanks for joining us today. When Bela and I were both on the faculty of Clarkson University, we would have lots of interesting conversations about how the world is changing and specifically about how innovation and entrepreneurship are changing. We do this over coffee or lunch as time allowed. About two years ago, I moved to Germany and Bela recently retired. But Bela had the idea to continue these conversations in the form of a podcast and invite others to listen in. I actually thought this was a horrible idea. I don't consider myself a podcast guy. But Bela was right, as usual, and we've had a great time so far. So join us each week as we talk with interesting people we've met to share stories, ideas, and insights into innovation, entrepreneurship, and the people that take unconventional paths to find happiness at work and in life. Bela, before we begin with today's interview, let me take a second to remind our listeners that this podcast is brought to you in part by the law firm of Phillips Lytle LLP. This is a sponsorship that makes a lot of sense to us. Bela, you know this firm well, don't you? you I sure do. I have worked with the key entrepreneurship practice partners at Phillips Lytle for over 20 years. Their nationally recognized attorneys take an entrepreneurial approach to legal matters, and they have a long, long history of success with startup businesses. Phillips Lytle is my go-to team for guiding startup businesses down the path to success. Yeah, we are excited to have Phillips Lytle as our show sponsor. You and I both know that they think like entrepreneurs, taking a pragmatic approach to getting things done and spotting issues before they become problems. So we firmly believe that if you need good, solid advice starting, funding, or selling a business, whether you're a single-person startup or working on a nine-figure exit, you and I confidently recommend the attorneys at Phillips Lytle. Bela, what's the best way for listeners to get in touch with them? For more information, contact Rich Honan, who is a Phillips Lytle partner. If you are old-school per- phone person like Mike and I, you can give Rich a call at 518-618-1225. Or... If you're of the generation that prefers online communication, you can reach Rich directly from his firm's website at philipslidle.com. That's P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S-L-Y-T-L-E.com. And it'll be great for us if you let Rich know you heard about Philips Lytle from listening to the Unconventional Path podcast. Okay, with that said, let's jump right into today's interview. Bela, do you want to introduce this week's guest? Thanks, Mike. So when we were working with Phillips Lytle on their sponsorship relationship, you and I thought it would be great to interview someone at Phillips Lytle who knows a lot about entrepreneurship. So we are pleased to have on the show this week, Jeff Schwartz. Jeff is one of the lead entrepreneurship practice attorneys at Phillips Lytle. I have known Jeff for over 20 years, and during this interview, he shared a wealth of of information regarding why it's important to have experienced legal advice when you are starting a business, raising capital, or transitioning a business to others. So here's my conversation with Jeff. Hello, listeners. Today I'm here with Jeff Schwartz, who is one of the key leading attorneys at Phillips Lytle, uh, which is a law firm, a regional, large regional law firm uh, that provides all sorts of services. Jeff's specialty is working with uh, entrepreneurial businesses both large and medium, and helping them not only to get started, but also oftentimes to sell or to get acquired. So welcome to the show, Jeff. Good to be here. 
Well, glad you can, and uh, glad you can take the time to be here with me today. So let me ask you a, a, my first question. My first question is, so I'm, uh, I'm getting ready to start my business, and uh, somebody whispers in my ear and says, hey, I should get an attorney to help me start my business. Why should I want to do that? Well, this falls under my general heading of, I think a lot of people hate lawyers, but my clients love me. Um, if you have a seasoned deal attorney, they kind of help you get to the finish line. Um, there's a lot of pitfalls along the way. And um, as the commercial says, you know, we know a thing or two because we've seen a thing or two. Um, so um, our value is kind of keeping our eye on the prize and knowing where to kind of spend our and your collective capital. So, you know, we focus on what matters and get it over the finish line. Yeah, excellent. So you can help me when I get started. What are the types of things that you can help guide me through? Well, I mean, to even step back, which is kind of funny because you're starting at the beginning, it's a little bit about uh, listening to the client's needs. Um, so it's sort of finding out what their roadmap and objectives are. You know, if you're going to cut grass and be one guy with a lawnmower, that's one thing. If you're going to scale up to a thousand employees and all sorts of different issues, that's another. So it, it's it's understanding what the client's you know needs and objectives are, and then you know it's setting forth you know a path to get there because you know one nice thing about entering in the beginning is you can set the foundation correctly um, because I, I realize for a lot of these people I'm talking to talking to a lawyer and spending money on lawyers isn't really a core competency or not a revenue generating activity but once the plane takes off it is much tougher to stop and set the foundation so to do it right um, you know, is a great opportunity in the beginning. And that's, you know, something we've done for a long time and can help people do. Yeah. So if I'm, let's say I'm starting a, a technology-based business uh, or a, 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 a B2B or B2C business, and I don't know whether, you know, I want to leave it to my kids or whether I want to have someone buy it or whether I want it to be a lifestyle business. Uh, can you help me sort through those things? Can you help me understand what those parameters might be? We certainly could have a discussion to ferret out those issues. Um, I can tell you over a couple of decades of doing this, nobody likes to contemplate their own death. So that's always a difficult conversation to suggest to people that they may have to think about that. Um, sometimes it's not so much that we have to plan for it now. It's to make sure that we don't kind of shoot ourselves in the foot and you know put ourselves in a position that you can't unwind from. Um, you have probably heard me say that you know, in that beginning stage, we are in the group love stage. Everybody wants to hug and save the world. Um, but, you know, over time, you know, interests diverge, shareholders' interests diverge. Um, you know, we've seen every manner of business, um, spouses, parents, children, siblings, um, you know, get into all sorts of fights, for lack of better phrasing. Um, so it's, it's the plan for mechanisms to kind of get, you know, ahead of that if there is some sort of roadblock. So long-winded answer to your question, it's, again, it's ferreting out what these people want, what they think the business is going to look like, and then to have mechanisms in place because we can't plan for everything. You know, the 100-page the document that people look at and say, oh, my God, why is it 100 pages, would be a million pages. So part of our experience is balancing the likely risks with the unlikely and, you know, trying to balance those competing needs. Yeah. So let's, let's just focus in on a concrete example. So let's say myself and two other people, we start a company. 
So the three of us are uh, shareholder-wise equal partners. And we're two years into it, and I pass away. So now I'd, all of us, I'd be sad, Bela. Well, thank you. Uh, this is uh, so. One of the things you need to sort through is what happens with my shares of stock, assuming I had some ownership of the company. Does it go to my spouse? Do my other partners get to buy it back, et cetera? Is that an ex- sort of an example of the types of things that that you'll help me sort through? Absolutely. Um, and as you can imagine, when entrepreneurs you know start with the energy and the excitement of the business, they're like, I have the next greatest thing that's going to conquer the world. And many times when they come in, I say, for this discussion, I'm going to assume you do have the better mousetrap, the best way to slice bread. It's sort of irrelevant to me for this part of the conversation because it's agnostic to your thing, your secret sauce, your product, your solution. I want to talk about some corporate law. So the, one of those basic building blocks is indeed you know, policing the disposition of the equity, which is lawyer mumbo jumbo for you know, making sure we have a sense of who has what and who can transfer what. Because as you say, you, know, you have three partners who are in business, but maybe they don't want to be in business with one of those partners, spouses or family members. So it's that kind of mechanism that might say, you know, the classic upon death, divorce, disability, here's what happens. You know, we can buy it back. We have to buy it back. You may sell it. You have to sell it. And we can go through, you know, all of those parameters. Got it. Got it. So that seems pretty important to not only focus, I think, as most people do, on how to get started, but also that when stuff happens in some future point in time, you have at least thought about and agreed to a mechanism for solving that issue. Absolutely. I mean, my viewpoint, um, not to get too far in the weeds of kind of corporate lawyering, um, unless your audience has an interest in that. Um, you know, so in this these scenarios, I tend to be counsel to the company as opposed to the entrepreneur himself or herself. And as you understand, in the beginning, those interests are often aligned, but they are different interests. So my view is what's good for the enterprise, including how can we ensure that the enterprise survives if one of these things happens? So you walking down the street and get hit by a bus, I'm sad, I'll send you a nice card and a bunch of flowers, but I need to make sure there is some sort of succession mechanism in place. And this is where, having done this a lot of years, we can you know, address those issues early on because we know it has to be dealt with. Right, right. Now, uh, depending upon whether I want to leave this business to my children or whether uh, I want to make it a lifestyle business or whether I hope that some larger company is going to acquire me in four or five years, does that take me down different paths with respect to corporate structure and ownership, et cetera? It, it does. I mean, actual choice of entity, location of entity, location of where the entity is formed, which could be different than the, the physical location and, in fact, often is, it will take you down different paths. Um, you know, again, at a very high level when I'm counseling my clients, um, I, I tell them my job is to make sure they make informed decisions, but they have every right to make bad decisions. Um, it's not my business, it's their business. So I want to provide them with that information. And you know, these things, we can memorialize almost anything you want. Obviously, we can't run afoul of the law, but that's not realistically going to happen. We can create whatever structure you want, but we could talk about why that might be problematic down the road. And getting back to this theme of we have experience and have done this a long time, we can change some of those things down the road. But 
imagine making a change when two people have to agree as opposed to in a bunch of years when there's money involved and 100 people have to agree. So, yeah, it can be done, but we want to be practical about it. So absolutely, if you're thinking about just a business for you, maybe a business for you and your kids, uh, maybe a business that's going to need outside capital, uh, that will absolutely impact you know the type of business and the actual structure of the business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can remember from my, my VC days, uh, looking at making a potential investment in, in a company, and they had some type of, of an agreement in place that fundamentally made them radioactive. In other words, it was something that had to be undone before it would fit into the typical VC investment structure. Um, maybe it was because it was an LLC uh, or a limited liability corporation, and you know VCs tend to invest in C-corps. So that all had to be undone. And like you said, yes, you can do it, but it sort of uh, takes time, takes money, and maybe more people have to agree, have to un- unwind certain things. Yeah, so again, harping on the theme of the value of experience. Um, you know, again, so I can create whatever the founder wants, but then if we go seek outside capital, as you suggest, the investor looks at that and says that needs to be changed. And again, on your best day, maybe we can change it, but perhaps we're unable to do that. And that's why we try and get ahead of that curve, because we know what these people are going to require. And a couple of things, like um, I remember back when I was in law school and some of these professors were kind enough to say, okay, wake up now. Here's a real practice point you want to pay attention to. Uh, Here's a couple of, I I think, takeaways um, I I will give you. Hopefully there are more um, throughout this uh, uh, interview here. Um, Number one, the fact that no one's looking isn't equivalent to it being blessed, right? So we may be below the radar screen because we're small and just starting out. So we did something and no one's running around saying, oh my God, that's wrong. That's a problem. But it doesn't mean you did it the right way. And when you say we, you mean me and my two partners who started this business. Correct. Um, You know, just because we implemented something doesn't mean that it's the right way to do it because no one's really looking. There isn't kind of a, a governing board of correctness, Um, And that happens a lot. The fact that you're not on the radar screen doesn't mean that it was okay. And by okay, I don't mean we're running afoul of the law, but that it was right for you. The other practice point that fits into your general questioning is sort of the you only get one shot at a first impression. If you have your stuff, to use a fancy legal term, done correctly, you get some gravitas when you're presenting, whether it's to customers, to employees, to prospective investors. I mean, we could always correct it, but if you have it right in the first place, um, you buy a lot of credibility. Um, So, you know, again, one of the things that we do from having experience and setting that foundation correctly is sort of position these companies for what may be coming so that when it comes, they're ready. Because, well, maybe you wouldn't be surprised, but I think people might be surprised you, you talked about I start with entrepreneurs and I may help form them and I may help them with an exit, you know, do you know, mergers and acquisitions. And sometimes someone will come to me to handle a merger or acquisition. And not only do I have to do the work from that point forward, there's a ton of work I have to do that they never did that they should have done before they came to me. So once again, on our best day, we can backfill, but sometimes, you know, juggling so many constituencies, it's hard to do. So uh, again, a long-winded answer of if you have everything done correctly, you're in a much, much better place. Yeah, that's an excellent point because I I can clearly remember meetings with uh, companies, again, back in my VC days, 
where they didn't have something structured properly, i.e. for taking on a VC investment. And it makes you kind of question like, okay, what's, what's going on here? Why, why did these guys go down this path? And it certainly doesn't go into the positive column for, you know, that's a good thing. And you know it's going to slow things down because you're going to have to get that fixed. You're going to have to get it unwound or whatever. So that's an excellent point. It, it is. And like I said, you know, on your best day, you can fix it. But, you know, think of this scenario. Um, often, you know, these founders have a technology product, an app, some sort of software, what have you. So it's three founders. They've created some technology, and then they're going to form a company to commercialize that. Well, lo and behold, those three individual founders never transferred the intellectual property to the company itself. So even though the three of them think of themselves and the company as the same thing, they're totally separate. So they go about, you know, operating the company, which as in fancy legal terms is infringing on their intellectual property because it's owned by the individuals. The investor comes in and is kicking the tires and says, hey, I noticed the company you want me to put $10 million into doesn't actually own the thing. So now here we have our two baskets. One is the, okay, let's fix it. Hey, you three founders, can you just assign all of your rights? And then the three of them say, okay, here's the other scenario. You know, two of them say, okay, because they're working at it. One of them has moved across the country and says, I don't think I want to do that. And um, as is often the case in almost any meeting I have with people, I tend to mention my mom, uh, 80 years old, awesome. And she talks about people doing the right thing. And I say, mom, that's really cute. Now let me tell you how the real world works. So now try and get an intellectual property assignment from that one person who's not involved, who's moved away, who you haven't talked to in 10 years. They might say, okay, or they might say, boy, if you need it, it must be important. Why don't you give me a huge pile of money? All of which could have been avoided if on day one we assigned the intellectual property. And let me tell you, that stuff happens. Yeah, yeah, excellent point. I've seen that happen. And it's, it's a mess. And in many ways... I've seen that break deals, meaning the, the, the investor, the source of capital, walks away. Yeah, they, they say, listen, fix that, and then I'll come in, but I'm not coming in to join the fix-it party. Right, right, right. Um, the other thing I'll say is that if, if you are bringing in capital, and maybe you can talk about this a little bit, uh, that outside investor is going to ask you for, ask the company for, a whole bunch of agreements, the intellectual property agreement, the example of what we just talked about, who owns the intellectual property. Uh, they're going to go through every one of those because for them, it's a real embarrassing mistake to get along in an investment <laughs> and then find out that, oh my gosh, we just invested $6 million in a company and they don't own the intellectual property. So their attorneys, i.e. the VC's attorney, is going to make sure that all that stuff happens. So this is not something that you can sidestep. It's, mm-hmm. it's going to happen. So if you want to go down that path of bringing in outside capital, you got to get this stuff sort of lined up and in order. Yeah, honestly, um, you know, for my practice and my colleagues who've been doing this kind of work in this community for a long time, I, I really do believe we are practical practitioners. I think we focus on what matters. We don't get caught in the weeds. Um, but... You know, to the point that you raise, um, it is going to be looked at, right? You get one bite at kind of getting that stuff right in the beginning. And a, a good, you know, result for us is we set that foundation and that thick book of documents that you think you paid a lot of money for sits on a shelf and collects dust. 
Um, it's like an insurance policy. It's it's there if you need it. Um, and then, you know, you, you might not need us for a little while. You know, we're not dealing with kind of everyday operations of your business. But the big stuff, we want to set that right. And if these disputes don't happen, I'm very happy for you. But if they do, you will be very happy that there is a way to deal with it or that you've, right. you've cut it off at the pass. Right. And, and look, we all know life changes. So maybe when I start my business, it's me and my three partners, and we never thought about raising outside capital. So we set the company up one way because it made a certain amount of sense. And then two or three years later, we decide, hey, we want to go raise some capital. Would you advise that we go fix those things <clears throat> and get ourselves ready for taking in outside capital before we actually go looking for it? Uh, generally, yes. I mean, there is an expense with doing that. So, you know, if it's not bet the farm mistakes and the capital isn't imminent, maybe you could wait to deal with that. Because there's kind of two baskets of that. There's the things we really need to clean up, and then there are things that the investor will direct us to do, but it's not inappropriate that it wouldn't have been done because it truly is a function of what the investor is directing you to do. I will tell you again, just to step back before we go down the you know the investment side of this path. Um, particularly in my experience, so a lot of my startups you know have come out of academia. Those could be the academics or the students themselves. And to speak to the foundation setting, you know, here's another phrase that pops up a lot in in my world, which is, "I don't really care what you thought." And here's where this is relevant. So. You know, your earlier scenario was three founders, each owning a third, a third, a third. So those founders, you know, when they form the company, they give a third of the company to each of these people. They don't give them options. They don't give them stock that will vest. They don't condition anything upon performance. They give it to the three. And they said, you know, Baylor, we thought you would be the chief salesperson. Susie, you would be the chief marketer. And Bob, you'd be the chief scientist. And you all have an understanding of expected future performance of what you're going to do. And in your minds, in lay terms, if there weren't lawyers around, you would say, I gave you a third because we thought you'd do this, and you got a third because we thought you would do this. Well, then what happens is somebody doesn't do that, and the others say, well, I want to take that third back because, you know, Bob's not doing this. And I'll say, you didn't give it to Bob conditioned upon doing it. You just thought that. So, and again, this happens when some student teams might form and two people want to make a go of it and two people say, I'm going back to the family business in Kansas. Um, and that's where the documents come in. We could write a simple document that says, you're getting X for doing Y. And if you don't do Y, you don't get X. And that, that's in, you know, in English, that's like a clawback. How do we get that stock back? But if you don't have it, it's not there. So when you say, but we thought, that, you know what I hear? I hear Charlie Brown's teacher. I, I, I hear want, 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 because that's not what the documents say. And yeah, that's, that's my yeah, world. Excellent points. So uh, if I come knock on your door and I say, hey, Jeff, um, I'm thinking of starting a business. Uh, me and two other folks have these ideas. Um, help me understand sort of length of time it takes for, uh, for, for these documents and these types, this process to sort of happen. And that you can sort of help us understand what some of those ramifications and implications are. Sure. I mean, and that, that happens you know, frequently. Um, and I'm always happy to kind of take those meetings and walk entrepreneurs or prospective entrepreneurs or anybody in that community you know, through kind of that process. Um, again, a couple of flavors that will govern that answer. Um, but I'll start probably with the easier one, which is doesn't take a lot of time. Um, even though my colleagues 
probably don't like to hear this. You know, at this end of the legal market, there is some degree of commoditization. Um, you know, we have a lot of expertise and experience with these documents, but corporate formation and those basic documents are relatively standardized. I mean, not everybody could do it, but people who practice in my world, you know, can do it. And it, you know, forming an entity could take a matter of days. And if you want to pay a $1,000 expediting fee, it could be two hours. So the basics of formation are fairly quick. There's another set of documents, you know, agreements among founders, what you might call shareholders agreements, some intellectual property agreements, also, you know, a matter of days. But the twist I was talking about, which I speak to not just founders about, but all of my clients, until you're in a position to articulate the deal to me, and that could be writing eight bullet points on a napkin, if you all don't have the deal, what we're going to do is rack up a lot of legal fees and not move the needle. Now, you don't need to have the granularity. That's where I come in. But if I, you know, if the three of you came in and, and Bayless says, oh, we're a third, a third, a third, and Susie says, uh, no, I thought we were a 50, 25, 25, I'm like, go figure it out. And I could have the conversation with you, but you all need to articulate the deal. Now, there are some things you haven't thought about that I'm going to talk to you about, about death, divorce, disability. So when I meet with you, I will probably put ideas in your head and say, go, go on the mountain and come back down you know, with your answers, and then we can capture that. Yes. So again, a lawyer who likes to talk, the long answer is it's not a lot of time to get it formed if you all have a sense of what you want. Yeah, but it, it strikes me as one of your great value adds is, is helping us think through all, not necessarily think through us, but helping to say, hey, look, you got to solve the, you have to have answers for these five questions. Uh, absolutely. Because um, we, we only think of two of those. Yeah, it, it, we want to put those questions in front of you. And this gets back to the value, the experience, and why I'm fanatical about the value proposition. And many people who have been unfortunate enough to be cornered by me at some networking event will hear me say, I can do what the client asked me to do quickly, cheaply, and perfectly and not have provided a service to them. Because what will happen is someone will come in and say, I would like you to form a Wyoming limited liability company. And I'll say, That's, that seems a little bit odd to me. Um, why is that? And they'll say, well, I read in Bitcoin, Bitcoin magazine that, you know, that's the place to form this company. And I'll say, okay, you know, again, I could do it. I could do it fast. I could do it quick. I could do it cheap. And then when the investor comes in and says, I don't know Wyoming law, I'm not investing in you, here we go. We have done the objective that was asked of us and not only not provided service, it's a disservice because we didn't walk them through why that's a problem, what their objective is, what the investment community will need. So again, it's asking the questions and even more painful for people than asking is listening. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent point. Uh, so we're going to switch gears here a little bit. Tell me a little bit about Phillips Lytle, the office here in Albany, which is where we're at uh, recording this session. How many attorneys, sort of what, what sort of goes on here? So the firm itself is, I think, 185 years old. Um, my tenure is not quite as long as the 185 years. Um, formed uh, back in uh, Buffalo many years ago, um, had presidents work at the firm, or at least a president. Um, you know, worked on Love Canal, created the first credit card processing system, some really interesting stuff. Um, you can imagine, you know, what the population of the country looked like many years ago and what a major city that was. Um, but, you know, we're, you know, we're northeast. We're Buffalo, Rochester, Albany, New York City, Garden City, 
D.C., Cleveland, and a little outpost in Canada. So we have our kind of state plus footprints. Uh, we are a full-service firm. Uh, I myself was part of a smaller Albany-based corporate entrepreneurial boutique, and we joined with Philip Slidell 12, 13 years ago because clients did need you know, a greater breadth of services. So while we were doing you know, great corporate work and related services, you know, environmental and tax and litigation and uh, real estate um, you know, we, and some other niche practices dealing with you know, food and ag tech, um, so about 170, 180 lawyers and then you know, a pretty sizable support team across the footprint to, you know, to help us get that product across. Yeah. Very good, very good. So, um, can we talk about Jeff Schwartz a little bit? Uh, if there are people who want to hear that, yeah. other than you know me, you, and my mom, and so, she's on the fence. So how? Uh, yeah, she's already heard it. <laughs> she was part of it. Yeah, for good or bad. So, uh, what made you decide to become an attorney? How, take us through that process. Did you come from a family of attorneys? Where'd you grow up? Uh, talk about that a little. Well, I, you, you personally know that I'm really not bright enough to be subtle, so I will kind of give you the direct answer to some of those questions. Um, uh, my father was a banker. My mother was a teacher. Um, I often tell people that if you hearken back to when you know people of my vintage, I'm 51, were in the fifth or sixth grade, whenever they said, what do you want to be, right? That was some school project. Yes. I could tell you what the answers were right now. Astronaut, president, baseball player, fireman, policeman, like, like entrepreneur, like things like that were just... Didn't exist. Not even, not, certainly not by name. I mean, people did it, of course, but right. it wasn't really an option. And that kind of fits in a lot to my life. And we'll circle back to that, to kind of what is going on in entrepreneurship. But I was a downstate guy, New York City, Brooklyn, 10 years, Queens, another 20 years. Um, my one sibling, older brother, is a, also a corporate lawyer. Um, the answer to how I became a lawyer, when I went to college, this is my uh, view of the world. And it, where did you go? I went to the State University at New Paltz. I like the State University system, good value. Mm. Um, and I, in my very black and white, type A plus way, divvied up the world into kind of three baskets. Um, you were going to have some sort of liberal arts degree, which I don't know what career was associated with that, but... Um, nothing definitive, not that there's anything wrong with that. You could go to med school, but that involved like blood. And, you know, if you got something wrong, somebody might die. So there was this other basket. I'm like, okay, um, law school seems, you know, appeals to my right brain analytical side. Interest interestingly, as an aside, people are kind of surprised that I'm not a litigator because they think there's some gift of gab, but that the zero-sum confrontational game doesn't appeal to me. I am a through-and-through through deal guy. Um, I, I really like that side of the house. So, um, so you know, I went to law school, and you know, really, I, I excelled. I, I liked it. I saw how the pieces fit. I, I knew what I wanted to do going into law school. Um, in fact, it is something of an ongoing battle, a friendly battle I have with kind of the academic institutions. Um, they're generally still in the we are a noble profession and I'm like we're a business and as a guy who hires in this market I, I would love to see more and more practical skills being taught but that's a, a whole nother podcast yeah yeah well it, it so we're going to do a little aside here 
It's interesting because I've often thought about this, whether you go to med school or whether you go to law school, um, certainly 20 years ago, all the people graduating from those fundamentally went into business for them, either for themselves, they hung up their own shingle, or they went into a small group of physicians or lawyers. So you were really businessmen. You had to learn how to run a business. You had to learn how to do all that stuff. That's a bit changing in the medical field. Now, more and more physicians are being employed by hospitals or larger corporations. Uh, but I've always, uh, I'm always surprised that in those two professions, they taught you very little, if anything, about business and how to run a business and all the things you need to do. It's a fantastic point because, and I, I have had this conversation, very, very few people can be so good of a technician that that's all they need to do. So when I worked in New York City, when I first came out of law school for a mega white shoe firm, there were people who you know, were so good at it, you know, maybe a tax partner who said, change this and change that and create a Bermuda partnership with a 1% limited partner and they saved you $100 million in tax. They could be that guy or girl. But I say all the time, you, you know, you could be the best surgeon in the world and if the lights go out in the middle of surgery because you didn't think to pay the electric bill, there's a problem. So learning about business or operating a business, I think the schools are woefully, you know, underpreparing students about yeah. that. Yeah. So you went to, you went to law school. Uh, it sounds like you went to work for a large firm in New York City after you graduated. Correct. So my assumption is you did do very well in law school because that's typically those large, large firms have the uh, pick of the crop. I have uh, wildly outperformed my academic pedigree. <laughs> and... Uh, so what did you do there? Uh, very, so I kind of knew I was not long for the city, New York City, even though that's where I'm from. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a firm believer that uh, cities like that are for two types of people, really, 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 really rich and really, really, really poor because it doesn't matter to either of them. And I was neither. Um, you could do really well down there and still <laughs> not cross the hurdle. So I knew I was going to get out. So I viewed it as, you know, great paid training. And the things you got exposed to, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the first kind of collateralized bond deal for David Bowie's royalties or Jacques Cousteau stepping into the office, um, you're seeing some crazy stuff. Um, so there's a lot of learning, a lot of hard work, um, but a lot of exposure. Um, you, know, you were the, you know, the 19th person on a 20-person deal team doing billion-dollar deals. Yes. Um, and that experience was also part of why I wanted to leave that area, and we can kind of get into that. Um, but down there, there was so much work. You were going to be a worker bee, and I don't know how much of the counseling side of the house you were going to get to there in, in any near-term meaningful way. Right, right. And uh, so then what happened after, after there? A few years down there, and um, having gone to law school up here, um, I – moved to Saratoga to live a different kind of life, to balance lifestyle with good work product. And this is when you joined Honan and Wood? That's correct. So that's when we met. And how, how long ago was that? Uh, I started with uh, the aforementioned Honan uh, in March of 1998. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we've known each other for a long time. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, Honan and Wood focused on what, what type of practice? Uh, it was a, a very interesting animal because we're in the state capital of New York for those folks listening elsewhere. So 
a lot of the lawyers were involved in practices that you would associate with state government, uh, insurance, litigation, lobbying, energy. They were something of a corporate, <clears throat> corporate boutique, um, doing corporate deals. Um, so they, you know, litigation as well, but sort of a niche firm, which was an odd kind of animal. And when you know, Rich Honan hired me in March of 98, it was sort of to grow this venture capital practice, which uh, wasn't even yet a nascent practice around here. It's really interesting if we talk about the arc, but it wasn't there. Nobody wanted it. Nobody could do it. Nobody knew what it meant. And, you know, we have many good anecdotes about that. Maybe we'll get to. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for you listeners, if the name Rich Honan sounds familiar, uh, he was one of the guests on this podcast, uh, I think right around episode 10. I don't remember the exact number, but uh, if you go back through the list, uh, you can listen to the interview I had with him as well. So, uh, and then Honan and Wood ended up uh, merging with a larger firm, right? So, mm-hmm. You guys were in an entrepreneurial firm. You're running an entrepreneurial business, and you got bought by a larger company. We did. Um, you know, we had a good run for a lot of years, um, and I, I think we were pretty good business people. Speaking about running a business for when we had that firm, um, but just like in, in any other industries, you know, size, critical mass. You know, when you're at a Honan and Wood. Um, and you need to speak to IT, you're talking to yourself. <laughs> Same thing with accounting and marketing. Um, obviously, with a bigger firm, you have more support, you know, pluses and minuses, mostly pluses to my colleagues listening. Um, but yeah, we had a pretty interesting run. And um, uh, it, was, it was fun being part of kind of a nimble, growing, young yeah. shop. Yeah, so your experience, uh, the point I'm trying to make is is that your experience is not only as a lawyer, but you personally experienced sort of this notion of being part of a growing entrepreneurial business and then having that business being acquired. Absolutely. So you have to kind of, like other people at like a go or grow stage, you have to look at the horizon and see, you know, what's happening in the industry, what the, the marketplace is. And like everybody else... You know, while you'd love to time the top of the market, you'd much rather catch it a little bit below the top than plummeting down on the right side. Right. Not that the firm was having problems, but it's just, you know, there's, a, there's sort of a right time to do that yes. if there ever is. Right. And I think I, I can imagine that this also uh, gives you some insight into uh, sometimes uh, the emotional uh, highs and lows that your clients may be going through when they're they're going through a potential transaction like this. You know, a- absolutely. I mean, part of that value um, is kind of being the dispassionate observer. Now, I have my personal experience, not just my work experience, as you're, you're talking about now, but to, to be a dispassionate advisor so we don't get caught up in sort of the emotion, which has great value, um, it's, it's, you know, it's like people getting worked up. It's like, okay, calm down. Let's treat it as a business proposition, and that has a lot of value in the course of deals that could take quite a period of time. And it allows us to, you know, do this step back and see things. Um, I recall I had a, a client who is still a client who has a, a business that is often um, contacted to be acquired, just the nature of his business. It's got a great recurring revenue stream. And he was approached to sell it as he often is. And one time we proceeded to go down the path, you know, pretty far to sell it. And I got the sense he didn't really want to sell it. And I said to him, it's okay if you don't want to sell it, but let's 
let's have that realization. Let's talk about it. There's nothing wrong with that. He wanted to continue to do it. He liked it. He was good at it. It was at a great place. And I knew we had kind of crossed that Rubicon. So inadvertently to him, he kept having me negotiate for more and more things from the other side, really just to see how far we could take this. And when he had me ask for and successfully get a $1,500 a month car allowance for him, after he sold and joined them, I said, okay. They, they said, fine. I'm like, okay, now let's stop. Do you want to sell this or not? Because now we're just trying to see what we could do to end it. And the point of all that is we can step back and see, I don't know if holistic is the right word, but we, we can have the top-down view and look at all those pieces, and it gets back to focusing on what matters and what the clients you know, truly want. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so let's talk about sort of the entrepreneurial uh, environment or ecosystem right now. Uh, is it a good time to sort of start businesses? Is, is entrepreneurial businesses doing well? Because uh, you see a lot of them, right? You see, you, you're sort of out on the forefront of either things going really well or things not going really well, because that's when people call you. When stuff is steady state, the phone never rings. It's either things are going great or we're having lots of problems. So what's, what's your sort of take? Uh, what's the temperature of the water? We need some driver, whether it's positive or calamitous. <laughs> um, I, you know, you'll hear, you know, mixed takes on, you know, whether they're, you know, it, it's not uncommon. They say, well, when things are bad, people are, you know, either getting fired or things are consolidating. It's time to start a business. But while that may be a great time, I don't know that the counter to that isn't a good time. Um, if the right idea and the right team coalesces, it's always a good time. I mean, there's ebbs and flows about maybe capital and investor appetite. Um, you know, over a couple of decades of doing this, you know, we've seen frothier times than others mm. uh, within our footprint. Um, you know, we're certainly a little more insulated, you know, with state government and where we are from kind of the greater trends. And I do a lot of speaking and writing about that. You know, when SoftBank raises a hundred billion dollar fund, you know, that they're not doing a $3 million investment in Albany. It's not even a rounding error. Um, but I, I think it is a good time. Um, we, there's certainly a lot of talent around here. There are some holes in the marketplace, and I don't mean from like a product or a solution standpoint, holes in the, in the entrepreneurial ecosystem that we've been kind of championing, trying to fill for as long as we have been doing this. But, I mean, things are good. Um, you, know, you see some spaces more in vogue than others. It could be a materials time. It could be a software time. There was a time, I'm not sure it's gone, but everything was an app. Get me an app. Everything was an app. Um, if, if the business is right and the team is right, you know, money's the ultimate fungible resource and it will find you. Yes. Yes. So uh, we've been talking for 40 minutes, and uh, so I want to sort of start wrapping this up. Are there, are there any topics that I didn't ask you that, that you want to opine on? Like the meaning of life or? I, anything. No, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk because I really, I think I have a super practical view about this, and I would love, you know, outside validation. I don't mean from you or your audience, but I do think my clients appreciate what I do because I do have an eye on the prize mentality. Um, and we're really practical. And I hope that that comes you know, through when we do our work. Um, many years ago, Rich Onan, who we talked about earlier, you know, we always share this story. We had, some, uh, we had an engineering client you know, maybe decades ago, and 
when they would call me, it was usually 4.30. And the reason they called it 4.30 was, like, well, the day ends at 5. You can only bill me for half an hour. <laughs> and, and, and we've got a problem with uh, that relationship there. You know, we work all the time. But as I say, you have to trust me to spend your money. Um, sometimes you'll call me and I'll say you don't need me. And sometimes I will charge you for not calling me because you did it yourself. And I will penalize you for doing that. So it really is developing a rapport is very, very important. Um, the whole industry, you know, their, their idea about client communications is sort of stilted, in my opinion. I, I think the whole industry, like other entrepreneurial thoughts, is ripe for some change, whether a movement to flat fees or value price billing. Again, probably a much larger conversation, but I think there's some inefficiencies to, yeah. to be wrung out. Yeah. Well, certainly, Jeff, uh, you've been our go-to guys back when, we were in, when I was in the VC business. Um, you either represented us, or if we didn't get to you first, you were sitting on the other side of the table representing the company we were thinking about investing in. And both of those scenarios were good because I knew if you were on the other side of the table, we could get a deal done and there that, wouldn't be any dumb stuff going on. That's a, that's a really super point if, I, if you'll indulge me you know, a, little, a few more you know, minutes, do with it what you will. But you know, having knowledgeable counsel on both sides does especially in kind of the entrepreneurial space, because the terms that come in a term sheet that you referenced earlier, and if you just read them as a lay person, they do look onerous and there's reasons for them. But if you get someone who isn't skilled, um, it's going to be a very, very heavy lift if they don't know kind of what you know, middle ground looks like. That's probably true in a lot of industries, but I just know it from mine. Um, a knowledgeable team on all sides uh, makes for a much smoother process. Yeah, absolutely. You, 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 and, and one of the challenges when you're not located in Silicon Valley or New York City or these real hotbeds of entrepreneurial activity, when you're not located there, um, sometimes the advice you get in these other markets is not the sort of standard going rate, it, not rate, but the standard going agreement set of parameters. And uh, that, that makes for a more difficult negotiation and uh, investment or sale or whatever you're trying to accomplish. When you're getting advice, you as a company owner are getting advice that's sort of out of market, I'll call it. Yeah, right? it's a very fair point. And, and so I think the, one of the great values that a firm like yours brings is understanding where the marketplace is so that you know, you're not going to be able to get this term. It's just, no, it's not, you're, you're not going to get the $1,500 car allowance. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's knowing, you know, it's, it's, it's picking your battles, right? right. That's absolutely exactly. it. And we know what battles are worth picking. Yeah. So, Jeff, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, I really enjoyed the conversation. And uh, you've certainly been our go-to guys for a long time. And uh, you're at the top of my list when it comes to recommending uh, attorneys for entrepreneurs to speak to. Appreciate the kind words and, uh, you know, enjoy chatting with you. Thanks. So, Bela, what were your takeaways with the interview with Jeff? So, you know, one of my key takeaways is this notion that when you're setting up your business, how you set things up can have a significant impact on you in the future. So, for example, and I think Jeff made this point really well, uh, before you go talk to the attorney, have an idea of what you want out of this business. Do you want it to be a family business? In other words, it's just you and your family. Maybe it's something you leave to your children. Uh, or is it something that you want to sell at some point in time? You want to sell to some larger company and have an exit. Uh, 
Is it something uh, that you're going to need to raise outside capital for? Or, or do you think that you have sufficient capital to, to start this business and to grow the business? So you have to think through some of those uh, issues. And of, of course, a guy like Jeff can help you think th- those things through. But you should have some idea of that because knowing the answers to those questions is going to impact what the form of the legal entity is, is whether it's a C Corp, whether it's an S Corp, whether it's an LLC. Um, it's going to also impact uh, the types of shareholders you may want, the types of shares you're going to want in that business, uh, where you register that corporation uh, as it's a legal entity. So I think a lot of these things are really important. And so there's these fundamental set of decisions that you make when you set your business up um, that are really, really important. Agreed, Bela. Uh, you know, there's a lot of decisions that you make when you're starting a business. And I've made a lot of mistakes. And you and I have talked. I know that you make have made a lot of mistakes. Um, and, you know, some of these are easy to fix and some of them are less so. But by having a good lawyer and a good accountant up front, you can really minimize those mistakes that could be very, very costly down the road. You know, and, and the thing I'll add to this is I remember in my venture capital days, uh, where, you know, we'd go, go talk to an entrepreneur who has an existing business. Uh, he's looking for some capital. And then as, as, and we like what we see. And as we engage further with the company and the entrepreneur, you know, we find out that they have the wrong structure to, to sort of take in a, an investment from a venture capitalist. Uh, they, they don't have various different intellectual property agreements in place. And, and whenever you come across something like that, where you, where they're all fixable, like you said, and like Jeff said, you can, you can fix them all. Uh, but it sort of gives you pause when you're an investor and you're going, hmm, do these guys really know what they're doing? Uh, so it, it's sort of, you know, as I like to say, doesn't go into the positive column uh, when, you're in eva- when you're evaluating making a potential investment. So the, the better job you do with all this kind of stuff, number one, the less headaches you have in the future. And number two, uh, when it's a potential acquirer or you're getting a potential investment from someone, it sort of helps to increase their confidence that you know what you're doing and things are set up properly and you'll have an efficient and effective uh, transaction going on. Yeah, agreed. Um, one of the things that Jeff talked about and explained so clearly that I love, because it took me a while to learn this when I was just starting out, is that the entrepreneur is different than the company, right? When the entrepreneur goes into this, a lot of times a new entrepreneur will think of the company and her himself kind of wrapped up together, that I am the company and the company is me. And that couldn't be farther from the truth. Uh, and, you know, entrepreneurship textbooks don't teach this. And I try to teach this in the classes that I, I teach, but Jeff said it so well. Um, the interests of the entrepreneur and the company, this separate um, being, right, that is recognized by the law, right, and that, that has certain aspects to it, the interests are usually aligned at the beginning. But over time, the interests of the company and the interests of the entrepreneurs always diverge. They always change. And that's where the rub comes in. And that's the value of a good lawyer is to think things through at the beginning from the standpoint of the company, of this legal entity that's separate from the entrepreneurs. Because then whether you're getting acquired or whether you're bringing on an investor or whether you're dealing with intellectual property, it's sorted out and it's separate and it's easy to put things in one bucket or the other. So, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't, 
Uh, I was so excited to hear him explain that so clearly, and I'll kind of adopt this language when I teach uh, entrepreneurship this semester. So my students will get the benefit of, of just really clear way of talking about that. Yeah, that's, that's an excellent point. You know, another thing that we sort of kicked around is this, and it related to this, is that oftentimes there's two or three people that are maybe partners when they start a business. Um, and at some point in time, someone's interest changes, either through personal situations or just life stuff that happens in life, et cetera. And, and they would like to go do something else. And it's important to sort of, when you're forming the, the entity and you're forming this uh, triumphant of three individuals, uh, that you also think about, at least discuss and sort of write down, if somebody wants to leave, here's how we handle the shares of stock that they have or the percentage of ownership that they have. Here's how we're going to handle this, that, and the other. And you can change that in the future if, if, you, if it makes sense to change it. But at least at the beginning, you wrote down a set of sort of guidelines on how you're going to do that so that if someone's leaving and it's not under greatest circumstances, you can at least point back to this original document as a starting point for those conversations. Uh, and that's another thing that a, a good attorney can help you with. It can help you, uh, to use a poor analogy here, not only in getting married, but also in getting divorced uh, so that they can, you can deal with those situations uh, when, when things are friendly and people are happy as opposed to when maybe things are not going well and someone wants to depart. Yeah, assume things are going to head south at some point. I mean, I've never been involved in any um, any organization, any business startup where something's happened. Even I've seen it with family members and best friends and you name it, and everybody's well-intentioned and everybody are good people, uh, as it can be said, but but things happen. So I think you should count on that as an entrepreneur. Hey, you want to go into business with your best pal or with your brother-in-law? That's fine. But count on it, somebody, something changing and something not working out over time. And you'll be very, very happy you did. Yeah, you just have to, you just have, to have a conversation and discussion and, and, and sort of a, an agreement on, on how you're going to depart ways. Yep, and, what and if. That's, right. Yeah, and that's a smart thing to do. Yep. So, and that... So, that re- Sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Kind of goes into this idea of I think the biggest takeaway from the conversation that I heard is that entrepreneurs should not try to be cheap and set things up using like do it yourself forms on the internet and online lawyering help. And those have a purpose. But if you're serious about starting a business, spend some of that precious capital up front on a good experienced lawyer and a good experienced accountant. And those dollars spent will bring you some of the best return on investment that you'll ever know. I guarantee it. Uh, a good lawyer, there's a, I guess, here's a great saying in German. I'm sure it's in other languages too, but wer billig kauft, kauft zweimal. That's he who buys cheap buys twice. Okay. So, you know, don't be cheap when you're, when you're, when you're setting these things up because it will really screw things up without actually talking to somebody that spends the time to understand your business and creates a structure and creates uh, all the different mechanisms um, that fit the situation at hand. You, you're you're going to pay in the long run. I guarantee it. So, okay, question for you, Bela, because you've done way more of this than I have. A, can you overpay for a lawyer? And B, what should you look for in finding a good lawyer? So you can you can certainly overpay, and that's probably because you didn't find the right person. Um, so, you know, lawyers uh, come in all sorts of flavors, just like physicians do. There's there's the family practice doctor. 
who sort of is the jack of all trades, uh, but he's not the person that's going to take your gallbladder out. Um, but he can probably diagnose it a little bit and say, hey, you know, you need to go see this other person uh, to have your gallbladder taken out. Uh, and lawyers are the same way. So there's, there's, you know, there's the general attorney who does all sorts of stuff. Um, that's not what you want in this case. You want an attorney who's a corporate lawyer uh, or an attorney who, uh, who specializes in entrepreneurial activities. And there's, there's a fair number of these. Every pretty major city, I would say. Uh, so, you know, Albany's not a major city. Uh, but we're a good-sized city, and uh, we have two firms in in sort of the greater capital region of upstate New York uh, that have attorneys that do this kind of stuff. And uh, there's the same thing you could be said about Rochester. A place like New York City probably has 20 or 30 of these types of attorneys uh, at various different firms. So you got to go seek out the folks who do this day in and day out uh, because— if you're negotiating with a venture capitalist uh, for an investment, or you're negotiating, you're in the midst of negotiations of selling your business to a Fortune 1000 company, that other side is going to have the very best attorneys going, and they're going to know all the sort of um, little subtleties that you can put into an agreement that may sound uh, pretty benign now, but that can have a huge impact in the future. And so, you want an attorney. Uh, who's sitting on your side of the table, who also understands all those little subtleties and can explain to you that, okay, here's what this paragraph means. <laughs> it means that if this doesn't happen and this doesn't happen, you're going to lose $3 million <laughs> because they're going to they're gonna have the ability to come back and take it. Uh, so, or maybe it's a really good thing, right? And And you can put some good things in there for yourself. So, Go to a firm, find a firm um, that has attorneys that help people start businesses, that do transactions, that do business transactions, meaning the buying and selling of uh, businesses, uh, that uh, work with venture capital firms or help companies raise, not raise venture capital, but uh, negotiate the terms in bringing venture capital in. Uh, and the great thing about the internet world is uh, you can f do a Google search and all these attorneys have websites uh, and all these attorneys talk about what they do and how they do it and uh, talk to other entrepreneurs, talk to entrepreneurs who've, who've raised capital, talk to entrepreneurs who started businesses. Who's your attorney, right? What, what, did, what did he do for you? Do you like him? Uh, and if he says, oh yeah, the attorney I used is my uncle and, you know, he, he, he did my divorce, my house closing, and he did, he, he's, he's advising me on my uh, business. Uh, his uncle may be a very nice guy, but I would probably try to find someone who is just purely a business attorney. Good advice. Good advice. Yeah. Okay. What do you think? Should we wrap it up? I think we should. All right. Well... Listeners, we're really happy that you joined us in our podcasting adventure for this week, and we hope you found the last hour interesting and thought-provoking. As usual, we have a few small requests. First, if you have questions about what we've discussed, suggestions about topics, or potential guests, hey, please get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. 
And second, if you like what we're doing, hit subscribe on your podcast app or like or however your podcast app works. It's free. Uh, And even if you want to be radical, consider writing us a quick review. That would be awesome. And if you know other people that might find us interesting, please share us with them. So that's it for this week. Thanks for spending time with us. We look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Signing off from upstate New York. See you next week, Mike. Sounds great, Bela. That's That's it for over here in Münster, Germany. Have a great week. This podcast is produced for Mike and I by our friends at Busy Media of Schenectady, New York. They can be found at busymedia.co.